0: Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting May 28th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with George Schaller, one of the world's great field biologists. And Siam Editor-in-Chief John Rennie talks about a few of the articles to be found in our June issue. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, George Schaller. He was vice president for science and exploration at the Wildlife Conservation Society and is now their senior conservationist. He gave a talk to sixth graders on May 23rd at the Urban Assembly School for Wildlife Conservation in the Bronx. I spoke to him in one of the school's offices after his talk with many school kids playing in the yard just outside. You have this book out. uh, The title is A Naturalist and Other Beasts. So, uh, by implication, you're referring to yourself as as one of the beasts.
1: Well, humans are animals, so no problem in that. (laughs) No
0: problem in that. You refer to yourself in one of the uh, chapters of the book as a feral biologist. What do you mean by that?
1: I'm domesticated in many ways, but... I run wild, and that's a feral creature.
0: Uh, Tell me some more about the book. It's a collection of articles that you've had published, for the most part, in magazines over the years.
1: Uh, It's just to give people an overview of really the wonders of nature, all these beautiful animals out there that need protection.
0: Why do you bother to write for a general audience in addition to your scientific publications?
1: Partly I enjoy writing the more readable material rather than scientific. And if you do something that you think is important for society, you want to reach society. And so popular articles, even if still reaches a small percentage of people, reaches far more than uh, the scientific pieces. And... I think you also have a responsibility as a scientist to communicate to the public because you're using public money to do your
0: science. Mm-hmm. The the various articles that are compiled in the book uh, range all over the place, different animals, very different mm-hmm. locales. But well, what's, the, what's the through line? How are all the different articles connected to make this a whole?
1: I've been accused of having a short attention span in that some people spend their whole lives working with one species, such as wolves or tigers. Uh, I enjoy being out. I enjoy looking at beautiful animals. I look for opportunities, which is not crowded with people uh, and other scientists. So I go look at a country and say, hey, I don't know anything about Tajikistan, and I don't find anything published. Let's go to Tajikistan and see if you can help in any way. Mm -hmm. And so one way or another... If you pick a large and beautiful animal, you create empathy for it. People now have great empathy for gorillas, which they didn't have 50 years ago, just because of the popular writing, the popular films, and they see people sitting near them. And so people respond to that. If in the same area I had been studying something else, let's say a leech, Mm -hmm. Nobody would pay any attention.
0: This is one of the questions I was going to ask you because you've made a whole career out of studying large, charismatic Mm -hmm. animals. But those leeches are incredibly important as the foundation They're often
1: more important. Mm -hmm. But by studying the large animals, which you can sit there and enjoy and get the information and project the knowledge to the public so they respond, you get areas set aside... Uh, as reserves and whatever or management zones uh, which you would never get the attention if you don't have uh, local and international support so as far as to step beyond doing basic research, you need to have a constituency for conservation and that's one reason to work in a lot of these countries China has been tremendously receptive to this we've been I've been working now a quarter of a century, and northern Tibet now has a block of countryside that's uh, about 250,000 square miles. That's about the size of Texas, which has uh, legal protection. It has nomads living in it, fine. So one has to work with the nomads to find certain harmony between the people, the livestock, the rangeland, and the wildlife. But if you go to areas where nobody has paid attention, you can have often the most impact. Whereas if I go some place like Nairobi, which is full of people doing important work, but the impact you can have is much less.
0: Mm-hmm. And also, I mean you implied this but I don't I don't think you actually said it. If you protect the gorillas, you also protect the leeches and a thousand or a million other species that are too small to get on people's radars.
1: Absolutely. That's the one point from conservation. But I didn't start out this way professionally. I like to be out and sit and watch animals and write them, write their biographies and so forth. But right from the beginning, I was fortunate to work with mentors who were interested in conservation. So automatically, as you do your research you think of ways now how can you uh, improve the conservation and even if I only spent two or three years in nearly all my projects others have carried on in that area whether it's mountain gorillas or Serengeti lions and tigers and so forth so other people are building knowledge on top of what I do and one of the main aims I have really in these countries is to find young local people uh, that are enthusiastic about being out, that go with me, work with me, and then one hopes continue on in this work. And WCS has been funding uh, some of these people, and now we are already in the third generation of some of them that started out with me, went on to become professors and have their own students doing the same thing.
0: You know, on the other hand, you know you've got these generations of researchers, but you also have the generations of animals. You you studied lions in the Serengeti 35 years ago, and the descendants of those same animals mm. have been studied right. continuously in that in all the time since then by your research descendants. What do we get from one of these really long term studies of the same? individuals and their descendants that we don't get by more snapshot field studies where somebody comes in five years later somebody else comes in and looks at a different group of animals. What do you get from that through line?
1: Well if you really want to know an animal then it's useful to study at least one lifespan which is lions would be 18 years and elephants maybe 60 years or not too many researchers spend 60 years on elephants. but
0: Tough to study tortoises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, there's a goal, uh, 120-year-old Galapagos tortoise, but you get a depth of knowledge of their society beyond that, but your presence alone helps conservation, even if you do nothing but sit there. Uh, just by having people out monitoring what's going on mm-hmm. is very important. Number two is you see cycles of what's happening, which you can't predict. Like, suddenly, Serengeti lions get canine distemper from the village dogs around, Mm -hmm. and 2,000 lions die. All right? We wouldn't know about this unless somebody was there, but then we also learn that, hey, they breed so fast, the population goes right back up if it's protected.
0: So what might appear to be a major disaster is actually just a little ripple in the long term. Right. Uh, And in
1: normal life, even if people weren't present, they might well pick up some sort of disease. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for those two reasons alone, it's very important. And you simply, if an area is worthwhile, you can never turn your back. If it's a natural heritage, somebody's got to keep an eye on it, and the perfect example is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in this country, which is 30,000 square miles of wilderness. And it's our greatest wilderness area, yet the administration, oil companies, want to trash it. It's complete ecological vandalism. Uh, The senator, one of the senators from Alaska, Ted Stevens, is under investigation for corruption.
0: i got to say something about Ted Stevens for our our (laughs) long-time listeners. I just have to use the phrase... A Series of Tubes. Okay, I'll let you continue. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: remember that one. Uh, Then you have Representative Don Young, also under investigation for corruption oil companies.
0: Alaska is a very special place. (laughs) No, it's not.
1: It's a very typical place. Uh, It's special in that it still has a lot of wilderness and few people. But the point is... Unless you keep an eye on things, you're going to lose it. And that is true for every country which has something worth saving.
0: Let me give you a quote. You know the comedian Dennis Miller? Anyway, I'll tell you something he said, and I'd like your reaction to it. He said, you know, uh, I like caribou, but we should suck that wildlife refuge drier than one of Oscar Wilde's thank you notes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, as far as the wildlife refuge... I got a whole page of quotes by everything from presidents on down to oil company executives. But the number of lies and the amount of ignorance that's displayed is horrendous in our government officials. Uh, and
0: Well, since we've been comparing uh, <laughs> the, our oil issues with an addiction, it's kind of ironic that the the solution being proposed by drilling in the Arctic is to find more of the stuff we're addicted to.
1: <laughs> well, the thing is, the Arctic Slope, most 90% of it is leased already to oil company and hasn't been drilled. Mm-hmm. But they still want that little corner of the Arctic Refuge because they know if they can get in there, they can get in anywhere. Uh,
0: Why have they not drilled in the 90% that they could drill in?
1: Uh Now, there's a very good American reason. It costs a little
0: more. And it would be cheaper to drill in the section that's currently protected? It's
1: cheaper and a higher grade. But the point is, if they're that concerned about getting oil, okay, they've already leased places. So leave the one place that is a calving ground for 120,000 caribou alone.
0: Let me ask you about uh, some of your field studies. Uh, you you were studying pandas in China you went two months without seeing an animal now you you talked about you know how how much fun really it is to study animals in the wild what what is it like when you're a field biologist and you go out there and day after day for two months you're not seeing the animal you came to look at
1: oh but there's lots of other things to see a panda makes about 90 bamboo droppings a day, poop. That gives you a lot of stuff to analyze.
0: I see. So even Uh, though you're not seeing the animal, you're seeing a lot of evidence for the animal.
1: Absolutely. And you can track them in snow. You can learn an awful lot by indirect means. Field studies take a lot of time. Uh, There are no quick answers because you go according to the life of the animal, not your life.
0: Right. (laughs) It's pretty funny. You came back to the tent one day and the panda was waiting for you.
1: Not only that, left a big pile of poop on my bed.
0: (laughs) And you did the first real uh, field studies of mountain gorillas?
1: Detailed studies. I habituated, in other words, got them used to my presence near them. I didn't try to get close. I let them close to me if they wanted to. And that was absolutely lovely. We had this cabin. I roamed around each day, usually alone, because it's easier to make animals used to you if you come every day and pretty soon they look up and say oh geez that guy again and they go on with their business
0: you know people have seen gorillas on television or maybe at a zoo for the most part you're you're out there i've been i've been up close with a lot of alligators in the everglades Mm -hmm. and you do get a sense that they're really not that interested in you and if you do get too close to them they'll let you know before they'll do anything violent to you but a, a, I'd be much more wary about a gorilla who might weigh... How much does a big male gorilla go?
1: Oh, maybe 400.
0: And it's all muscle. And they'll...
1: Yeah, and a big gut full of vegetation. Right, a
0: big gut full of vegetation fermenting <laughs> them. A, a, a large male gorilla could be fatal oh, if well, the interaction they, they often
1: prove that point.
0: Uh-huh. So how do? You, what is your emotional state when you are encountering one of these animals... Up close for the first time. Careful. That's a uh, good answer.
1: The the thing is, for animal like a gorilla, you can judge reasonably well what it's thinking. A panda, which doesn't have much facial expression, uh, it's more difficult to judge. So if you see the animal is getting very tense and nervous, yeah, you back off, or in other words, give it some space. Mm-hmm. If you get accidentally too close, well, people have gotten injured. The big male gorilla likes to come roaring at you and take a big sweep of his arm, and if he hits you with that big sweep, you probably feel it. I'd worked in Alaska around bears quite a bit, and so I wasn't very concerned.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but the... the uh Consanguinity of our of our relationship there with gorillas. You think that's an advantage because we can actually read each other's facial expressions better than, for example, us and a bear or us and a cat. Forget about.
1: It. One has to learn. I mean, if you have had a dog, that dog can read your gestures before you even mm. know you made them, and animals are much better at reading gestures. And you, if you're going to work with an animal, you better learn as much as you can about what sets it off and how does it respond.
0: Because that's their primary language.
1: It's their primary language, and uh, that's what stimulates them to behave in a certain way.
0: So where are you headed to next?
1: Oh, I'm going up to Ladakh, which is the Tibetan plateau part that's in India.
0: And what are you going to be looking at there?
1: Uh, We've got projects there, and I've got some Indian biologists that want to take me there and show me their projects. I'm looking to see what other projects there should be. Uh, You've got the same fauna as next door in Tibet. You've got gazelles and wild asses and wild yaks. And uh, In the steep parts, you've got ibex and snow leopards. But the main thing is to see, work with communities to see how to stimulate communities to protect their own environment. And that's the big challenge in conservation, whether you're talking about ranchers in Montana or nomads in Tibet.
0: Great to talk to you. Thanks very much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: There's a new issue of Scientific American out. I spoke with editor in chief John Rennie in the Siam Library the June issue of Scientific American looks like a lot of fun, and I mean that this time. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Steve. Thank you. I see we have, for the second issue in a row, yes. a Sean Carroll article, but there are two different Sean Carrolls. Two Carrels.
2: different Sean Carrolls. That's right. And Sean Carroll, the physicist, is the one who's writing in our June issue. He's writing about the cosmic origins of time's arrow. And this is a, it's a great question. It's one of those sort of fundamental philosophical questions of why does time... Move forward. Why does time go in one particular direction? You know, we never, we're, the the clock never runs backward for us. Time is always marching in one direction,
0: uh, really at one pace. Or as I think it was Bertrand Russell who uh, said, and he was he was describing entropy, but it's intimately related. Said. You can't unscramble eggs.
2: Right. That's right. That's the universe in which we live. You you can break the eggs, you can scramble them, but processes will not reverse themselves spontaneously and remake an egg. Now, the reason why that's sort of a, a, a mystery in, in terms of physics is that if you look at all the fundamental physical processes that the physicists uh, are constantly identifying, they are symmetrical over time. Um, so, when particles particles can combine to form a new particle or that kind of particle can decompose into the constituent particles, and in theory, all these different processes in nature should run in both directions. So why is it then that what we observe is a macro universe in which it all keeps running that way into one direction that we think of as the future? And this is a problem that physicists have been uh, pondering for a long time. Uh, Sean Carroll writes about an idea that he and some of his colleagues have been developing uh, that is uh, based on the idea of entropy as you as you're talking about it. They make an argument that maybe the beginning and the end of the universe may be very similar, and in fact, the universe in which we live may really be just one of a, a gigantic network of universes in part of a great big multiverse and in some of those other universes time really may be running backward as far as we're concerned
0: man you just blew my mind <laughs> <laughs> any any individuals in that universe that would experience time as running forward
2: that's right I, if if uh, something happened and our universe did suddenly seem to be running backward with respect to time um we wouldn't know it uh, the 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 sense of perception of time would always be uh based in one direction
0: All right so you can't walk backwards into the movie theater and not have to pay
2: no no that's i think that's one of the most important consequences of
0: their work it's another really interesting article on on the forensics of dim- digital imaging Dimital imaging is a, it's <laughs> right. yes it's it's been a long and uh, fruitful day Indeed it has Dimital imaging If time were running mm-hmm. backward we could I, I eliminate that. that Yes digital imaging and uh, obviously I mean you know an 8-year-old kid on a PC can uh, can put together incriminating photographs that would put you at the scene of a crime With very little effort, especially because you were at the scene of the crime. You can't prove that. But we have an article about techniques to analyze digital photographs and determine whether or not they've been doctored. That's right. The, the sophistication of
2: what goes on in photographic manipulation, uh, really, the, the two go hand in hand. On the one hand, thanks to Photoshop and more sophisticated tools, uh, it is possible to do all kinds of fraudulent things uh, with photographs. Um, but if you look at a more sophisticated level of what's happening to the digital information, you can sometimes uh, sort out uh, where the... the the fakery is taking
0: place. Right. If a photograph is going to become part of a court case, you obviously want to be able to tell whether or not it's been doctored. Exactly. So we've, we've got an article by Carl Zimmer about what a species is. We're going to have Carl on an upcoming podcast. So we'll, we'll mention that a little bit. He has a new book out as well. And then we've got this, uh, finally we've got the Tunguska mystery. Now I'm, I'm still sticking with the Venkman hypothesis. <laughs> That the Tunguska mystery is actually the uh, the, the large interdimensional cross rip.
2: Oh, you Ghostbusters fans! When when will you ever learn to let this alone?
0: Apparently, though, there's some actual physics explanation now.
2: Yes, well, it's it's more of an astronomical uh, explanation. Um, in case there's anybody who doesn't know, a hundred years ago, just a hundred years ago, uh, over over Siberia, uh, there was a a an explosion suddenly in the skies Um it was a massive explosion It flattened trees for fifty miles around it's fortunate that it happened in a largely uninhabited area so as far as i know no one was actually killed or injured in the process but it was a a huge event and ever since then people have been wondering what happened The obvious kind of explanation that we would often think of these days is, well, maybe it was some kind of some sort of meteor that was uh, suddenly coming down and maybe uh, exploded just above the ground uh, uh, in Siberia. The problem is when you would go to this site, there was no sign of an impact crater. Um, and so this has has been one of the things that's made the Tunguska mystery uh, so persistent over the years. People trying to figure out what was going on, and you've had a lot of exotic explanations. People have sometimes uh thought not necessarily about interdimensional gateways,
0: yeah. but but a- about any Art Bell listeners could probably. <laughs> List you a half a dozen really interesting hypotheses.
2: Yeah, you've had people who thought it was UFOs that were exploding or maybe some kind of, you know, tiny quantum black hole was coming down to the atmosphere and we were seeing something that was happening there. Uh, but uh, the authors of this new piece think they've come up with the explanation in that they've gone over this area and they've reconstructed uh, what... A scenario in which it could have been the case that some sort of small uh, meteor did come to ground, and and what may help make the determination here is that they think they've identified what may be a crater after all. It's a small lake uh, that that. Under the right circumstances, it could be the site of the impact crater, and it might have then subsequently filled with water. If that's the case, then further searchings down at the bottom of that uh, that pond, they might be able to turn up uh, some fragments
0: from that impactor. Which would be the kind of evidence that you really need.
2: At that point, you would pretty much, you could put, you know, stamped solved right onto the Tunguska mystery.
0: That's all in the June issue of Scientific American. Also feature articles on the ethics and economics of climate change as well as the trust hormone that's right
2: oxytocin so something for for everyone in the june issue steve
0: now it's time to play totally bogus here are four science stories only three are true see if you know which story is totally bogus Story 1, the smaller red spot on Jupiter, discovered in 2006, appears to be breaking apart already. Story 2, the world's oldest known tree, is a Swedish spruce that has been around for almost 10 millennia. Story 3, astronomers recently witnessed a star exploding as they happen to be looking at it. And Story 4, oregano oil is as good as pesticides to get rid of a common beetle that infests stored cereals. Time's up. Story four is true. Oregano oil is as good as synthetic insecticides at fighting off a common beetle, Rizopertha dominica, that can ruin stockpiles of cereal. The finding appeared in the Journal of the Science of Food and Agriculture. Oregano seems to inhibit egg-laying and larval development, probably because the oregano plant has to fight off bugs, too. And Story 3 is true. Astronomers from Princeton did happen to catch a supernova while they were looking at the star. They were intending to look at a month-old supernova, but instead saw an X-ray burst that signaled the beginning of another supernova. Their paper appeared in the journal Nature. And story two is true. Researchers in Sweden found that the 16-foot-tall spruce is actually 9,550 years old. That's a lot of rings to count. It's part of a system of tree clones growing from the same root network. For more, check out the May 27th edition of the Daily Siam podcast, 60-Second Science. All of which means that story one about the smaller red spot on Jupiter breaking apart is totally bogus. Because what is true is that the smaller red spot, dubbed Red Spot Jr., and the famous Great Red Spot have been joined by a third red spot. It was found by Hubble in early May and lies to the west of the Great Red Spot in the same latitude. If both red spots continue on their current courses, they should bang into each other in August. Run, spots, run! Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at at podcast.siam.com and sign up for the Daily Digest at Siam.com slash daily. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.